We're in Genesis 50, 15 through 21. We're almost there. The finish line. It is in sight, my brothers and sisters. We are, uh, we're not going to do another book with 50 chapters for a while. So, uh, have no fear. We're not slipping right into Exodus. I think, I think, uh, there was some fear about that possibility. Nonetheless, I better get my glasses. I'm getting old. I can't see anymore. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil. We have done to him. So they sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of your servant, of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, and may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. And so accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word, even this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I recently watched one of those ESPN 30 on 30 little shows or movies that they've got. It was of particular interest to me because I'm a Boston Celtics fan. And it was one of those moments in the history of the Boston Celtics that I would sooner forget. It was about Len Bias. Many of you probably haven't even heard of the name Len Bias. In June of 1986... The Boston Celtics had just won the NBA title for the 17th time. They were riding high, and thanks to a trade by Red Auerbach, they had the second pick in the draft. Imagine that. You just won the title, and now you have the second pick in the draft. And there was someone that Red Auerbach had his eye on for years. In fact, the previous summer, he had gone up to Boston and had played with some of the stars of the Celtics. And that man was Len Bias. He was the All-American out of Maryland, whose skills many compared to a larger-sized version of Michael Jordan. He was that talented, that good. And so, draft night, a few weeks later, it was much closer then, he gets drafted number two by the Boston Celtics. And I tell you, 
the whole New England region was aflame with excitement and joy because this was the man who was going to take over the role of Larry Bird. The heir apparent was in the fold. It was going to be good. More and more championships. Next day, he and his father, and uh, they fly up to Boston. They have their meetings with the Celtics. They have the, the showing of the jersey and the pictures at the press conference. They fly. They, he goes and he signs a, a contract with Reebok, I think it was. Goes back to Maryland. Has a brief, brief uh, press conference there. And then after spending some time with his family, goes out with some friends and never comes home. Cocaine overdose. Blew out his heart. Here he is on the pinnacle of everything and dies tragically. His mother says in the interviews that she had a premonition that something very bad was going to happen. Even at the draft, she knew that she was not as filled with excitement as you would have thought if your child was just drafted number two by the Boston Celtics and was on the verge of becoming a multimillionaire. She knew something was up. His tragedy actually brought good. This was a time in which there was very little awareness of the dangers of cocaine. And all of a sudden, you have a prominent athlete who dies. It not just shook the region around Washington, D.C., but it shook large portions of the country. Now they began to see what could happen. And you saw a lot of the... Um, Increase in the anti-drug message that took place. And so numerous kids' lives were saved because of the death of Len Bias. A few years later, his brother Jay, who loved his brother, was in an argument at a jewelry store, left the jewelry store with some of his friends, and someone left the jewelry store after them and gunned them down. What a tragedy. And yet his father and his mother took both of those things and they they both began to be advocates for the youth, trying to preserve them from the violence that was plaguing that part of the country and from the drug abuse that was plaguing that part of the country. Good coming out of evil. But that's not all that came out of the death of Len Bias. Unfortunately, there was also what's called the Len Bias Law, the Anti-Drug Act of 1988 which made the, the, the penalty so severe for possession of drugs that almost an entire generation of African-American men went to prison for the equivalent of five sugar packets of drugs. It devastated. See the events? We don't know what's going to happen as a result of the things that we perceive as tragic. Often there is good that comes out of it, and there can also be bad that comes out of it. Our big idea this morning speaks to that. It sort of uh, comes in with that middle verse of when God moves in a mysterious way. That Jesus speaks comfort to the guilty and the afflicted. We pick up in the life of Joseph with his brothers, with his father having been dead. And we see that guilt produces fear and doubt. Jacob's death produces an imaginary crisis. And I do say it's an imaginary crisis for Joseph's brothers. But to them, it is all all too real. 
they are convinced that Joseph will hate them and pay them back. They have convinced themselves in their mind that their brother has been biding their time like Michael Corleone, and when the moment is right, now that their father is dead, he is going to strike and destroy them. They are living in fear because they doubt the goodness and the character of their brother. So it reminds me of Proverbs 28, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as lions. I'm not saying that these men are wicked. I believe they were justified, but they were not living in light of their justification, as we'll talk about in a moment. I believe they're justified because they had previously owned up to the sin. However, what it is, the problem is they doubt the sincerity of their brother Joseph. And so they construct another ruse, just like the old Jacob, right? Let's send a messenger with, to, to my, our brother. And of course, that, that's reasonable in the sense that he was not living with them. And so, but what the ruse part is, is that this messenger carries a message from Jacob that Jacob never gave them. A message acknowledging the guilt of their sin and begging for forgiveness. Please forgive the transgression. Please forgive their sin because they did evil to you. They are owning up to their sin. Again, they did it earlier in the text that we had talked about, uh, that Dick had read. They recognized the fact that their actions were sinful. They recognized that they were evil. And they desperately want forgiveness. Often we struggle with the reality of our justification. We don't believe that we are forgiven of that sin. Oftentimes there's, there's a problem of habitual sin in our lives and we can struggle when we commit it yet again to believe that we're, we're forgiven this time. It may be the other 433 times, but not, not the, the, the 434th time. Or sometimes it's because it is such a grievous sin that we thought that we would never commit this, and yet here we find that we have. And we are consumed with our guilt. And there's this pocket of unbelief. All of us have these pockets of unbelief in our heart that occasionally will appear, okay? because there's still the remnant of sin within us. And so as a result of this, we will think that God cannot possibly forgive this particular sin that I have committed. That's what they're doing. And granted, what they did was horrible. Man-stealing. Selling their brother, their own brother into slavery. There's a sense in which they should wonder if they're really forgiven because it was really that bad. But we can struggle with that the same way. With our sin, our guilt, producing fear, producing doubt. And it's not just ourselves, but it's also the reality of the evil one, as we talked about, uh, for those of you in community group, in, in uh, Ephesians 6, that Satan often can attack us by bringing up our past sin, by filling us with fear and doubt, Sometimes it could be the simplest thing as the accusation of someone else, and all of a sudden you're on your bed awake at night, and 400 sins are now in your brain and wondering what's 
am I going to do? I know I am guilty, but what? Walter Marshall, in his book, The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, mentions the reality in one of the chapters that that when we are not firmly um, living in light of our justification, when we're uncertain as to whether or not God forgives us and has given us the righteousness of Christ, when we are sort of in that moment of fear and doubt, then we make no progress in our sanctification. It is impossible for us to go forward because it is only as we see ourselves as justified people, pardoned freely by the grace of God, given the righteousness of Christ, that we are able to grow in our experience of our union with Christ and become more like Christ. And so we all struggle at times with that reality. But some of us might struggle with the opposite effect. We're not living as justified people precisely because for a period of time we might live as self-righteous people. That, you know, hey, I didn't do that sin. So we can struggle with this not living in, in as justified people both from the sense of I'm guilty, how can God love me, but also of I'm righteous. Of course God loves me. But we're resting it not upon the righteousness of Christ, but upon our own righteousness. That I haven't downloaded porn. That I, you know, uh, pay more in taxes than Warren Buffett does. I don't know. We can, we construct all of these things to set ourselves up as better than someone else. And that, just like our Guilt moves us away from keeping our focus and our gaze upon Jesus himself. Joseph's response to them initially was tears. Joseph wept. He wept for his brothers precisely because he recognized they lived in such fear and doubt. He recognized the, the, uh, the spiritual condition they were in, the temporary spiritual condition they were in because they're being overwhelmed with this sense of guilt. Does Jesus weep in those moments? I believe he does. We grieve God. When we persist in unbelief about particular sins, when we are not looking to Christ in those moments, we're looking to ourselves. The first thing we have to remember, brothers and sisters, when those moments come, the first thing we need to do is remember that God justifies us on behalf of Christ who died, not our own righteousness. Romans 8. Seems like all roads lead to Romans 8, don't they? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That includes you. That also includes Satan. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, Paul says to them. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so when we're dealing with the guilt or the self-righteousness, we need to remember that it is Christ who gives his righteousness to us. It is Christ who has died so that we could be pardoned of our sin. That it is Christ who intercedes for us. You tie this in with Hebrews 10, where it talks about how Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because Christ lives forever to intercede for us. He doesn't stop praying for His people. In fact, when we fall into sin, whether that be the sin of licentiousness or legalistic pride, He prays for us that His work would be applied to us, that our eyes would be opened, and that we would see not just our sin, but Christ Himself, the Redeemer, the Risen One. Oh, how we need to see that. There are some moments we desperately need to see that. Secondly, Jesus gives us armor, Ephesians 6, to withstand the scheme. It talks about having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What do you need when you're being accused? Righteousness. Where is it found? It is given to you by Jesus Christ, and it serves as a breastplate preserving the most vital organs of your, of your physical body, of your spiritual life. We need to have the breastplate of righteousness on to withstand the schemes of the enemy who wants us to be guilty and despairing. We also need the helmet of salvation to protect our minds as we are tempted to turn over in our thoughts, our sin, our pride. We need the armor of God. Don't go naked, brothers and sisters, into the fray. Amy and I have been watching MI5. For those of you, it's a British show. It's their military intelligence. It's their version of the, essentially the secret side of the, it's domestic, so it's not CIA, but it's close. But you know, those, those Brits, they don't always carry guns, do they? <laughs> and there's this one scene that I'm watching, and they're chasing somebody, and they don't have a gun out. You know, and they're running after this guy. Well, guess what? The bad guy has a gun. <laughs> and he keeps turning around and firing off shots, and they're scurrying, hiding behind vehicles and walls and everything else. And I'm just thinking, they're gone into the fray naked. They're unprepared. They're foolish. I'm not chasing a guy with a gun unless I have a gun. Don't be like that spiritually. Recognize the reality that you need the armor of God to stand against the wiles of the enemy. That you need his protection. And that he provides it. And so at times we lose sight of Jesus and our sins fill us with fear and doubt, but He's still there. Now we get to some good stuff, better stuff. His response to His brothers, first of all, fear not, God's in control. Joseph assures them that He is not God. He is not in the place of God. He is not God's avenger against their sin. He is not their version of Judge Dredd. Okay. It's not the court of Joseph that they have entered. It is the court of God. And Joseph's job is not to avenge them. 
And then he makes one of the most profound theological statements in all of the scriptures. He alluded to this earlier as the text that Dick read. You meant evil. He is affirming their responsibility before God. He is affirming that they are guilty. He's not saying, ah, don't worry about it. It wasn't that bad. (laughs) You meant evil. They, that word meant in the Hebrew has that idea of planning, of devising, of plotting. It's not that they incidentally, accidentally did something evil, but they meant to do evil. They planned to do evil. There's a consciousness at work. There's volition at work in all of this. And so Scripture continually affirms that we are responsible for our actions, whether they are good or whether they are evil. That we plan freely according to our nature. And we are accountable for that which we plan. But then he says this, God meant it for good. His brothers were not the only ones who were plotting and planning and devising. God was also plotting and planning and devising. But instead of devising evil, God was devising good. And so the same thing, the selling of of Joseph into slavery was done for evil purposes by his brothers, but was done with good purposes by God, that he might save many lives. That's hard for us to grapple with that sometimes. There's an element of mystery in all of that sometimes. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about how God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, meaning Everything that happens, God has ordained that it would happen. And yet, God is not the author of sin. So he did not make Joseph's brothers sin. Not only that, but it says that he does not violate the will of the creature. So again, this idea, he does not make his brothers do this. They freely want to do this, but God does not stop them from doing it. Because God has a better purpose for this. The saving, not just of Egypt but of Israel, the man and the nation. So many lives were saved from the famine. God's motive was so different from that of Joseph's brothers. And so God saved Israel precisely so that Jesus could come and save the true Israel in a similar way as how he saved Israel back then. Acts 2. Another one of those most profound statements. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. These lawless men, okay, these people who crucified him are accountable for their actions. They freely chose to destroy Jesus, and yet... This was by the the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was not accidental. It was not like it was out of the Father's control. What are they doing to my son? Oh, no. This was how he designed to save his people. 
And so while their motives in, in killing Jesus were evil, his motives for the death of his son were good. Very different. But it's not just those big things. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 wants us to know it's not just those big things. That God still works in all things. For we know that those who love God, He works all things for good. Those who love Him are called according to His purpose. He continues to work these all kinds of things for their good. If you love God, He is at work to use all of the stuff in your life that you don't like and the stuff that you do, because it's all. It's not all the bad stuff. It's all the stuff. The good stuff, the middle of the road stuff, and the bad stuff he is using. But Paul, imagine this. This is where he goes with this. Among the things he mentions later on in Romans 8, our sin, the sin of others against us, false accusations, tribulation, nakedness, sword, famine, persecution, that God works good out of all those things and things just like them. The unspeakable things that we can come up, the the horrible things that have happened to us, God works good out of them. Do we believe that or not? Do we think that there are some things so bad that God cannot bring good out of them for us? We have to get back to the character of God, of His infinite goodness, His infinite wisdom, His infinite power, and go, yes, He can bring even the worst thing that happens to me into a good place. We see from Romans 8.29 that the good that he produces out of this is that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. In other words, he's taking all of those events of your life and he is working them and shaping them in your life to make you more like Jesus. This is not you making yourself more like Jesus. This is God making you more like Jesus through all of those things. So, Through your sin, he humbles you. Through the the sin of others against you, you learn how to be gracious and forgiving. How else are you going to learn how to be forgiving? By being sinned against. That's the only way. The only way to learn to be patient, I think, is to have small children. No, that's not the only way. There's also traffic. (laughs) And airports. (laughs) There's lots of ways. But you see, we don't learn patience until we are placed in situations that exceed our patience. We don't learn compassion unless there are times when we are afflicted. We learn how to comfort others because we have been comforted by God, as he talks about in 2 Corinthians 1. And so, you know, if you want to be like Jesus, 
rough stuff's going to happen to you. I'm sorry. But that's the only way that you and I are ever going to become like Jesus. The difficult things that we face. We have to recognize that none of these things that we sometimes use to identify ourselves have the final say in our lives. God does. He's the one who's in control. Not those horrible things that happen to us. Not the person who stole from us. Not the person who beat us and robbed us. God is. He's the one who's in control. Yes, it's hard to believe that at times when we're in the midst of it. But what about the person who doesn't love God? What happens with those things? One of two things. Those afflictions can convert them. Or those afflictions could harden them in their sin so they hate God even more than they did yesterday. Boston sports again. Sorry. Manny Ramirez, one of the greatest hitters of all time, baseball. Two World Se- helped lead the Red Sox to two World Series championships. By all accounts, not a good teammate. My nickname for him was Money Ramirez because he was all about the money. Okay, he's had a rough couple of years. He's tested positive twice for performance-enhancing drugs. His reputation has been flushed. And then he had a domestic abuse charge brought up against him by his wife. It was interesting to note that there was a a recent interview with him in USA Today, and he points to those bad things as being God's gift to him because he finally saw who he was. And so he's a professing Christian now. Yes, really. Shocking, isn't it? (laughs) Money Ramirez recognized that while he had fame, there were big holes in his life, and it was only those things that revealed it. So sometimes those are the very things that God uses to convert you. That's what happened to me. The bad stuff in life. He works to make us like Jesus, patient, forgiving, compassionate through those very things. And in the now, things look very confused. It's like the back, you know, of a needlepoint. You don't know what's on the front of a needlepoint, really, when you look at it, unless you have a trained eye, which I don't have. It looks like a whole bunch of knots and a bunch of different colors all over the place. It doesn't look beautiful. Turn it over, and often it is. Beautiful. There's the first fear not. Joseph meant to comfort them with that fear not. And and that the fear not is tied to God's providence. Fear not because God's in control. And so for us, it means the same thing. We are to find comfort in the reality of God's providence. And that is precisely why the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 28, point us to this. How? What does it benefit us to know? that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence. It's assuming that there is a benefit to theological knowledge. And we should have that same assumption as well. That for all true theological knowledge, there is a benefit. The benefit here, 
we can be patient in adversity. Thankful in prosperity. I like that that's there. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot do so much as move. It's Romans 8. For our benefit, that we fear not, that we take comfort, that we develop patience, and gratitude. And so God still comforts his adopted children with the knowledge of his providence. Third and last thing, the second fear not. Fear not, Jesus speaks words of consolation. These, these men had confessed their sin. They have sought their, uh, their brother's forgiveness. And so Joseph is free to speak kindly toward them. In other words, he doesn't have to get out the boxing gloves and prove that his brothers are sinful. They've already admitted it. He doesn't have to convince them that they need to repent because they've already confessed their guilt before him. Okay, and so Joseph again, I think, points us to Jesus, to the sinner who is broken by their sin, who is lost in that fear, who is lost in that doubt, who, who is struggling. He speaks gospel consolation. To those who repent, Jesus comes gently, very gently. He says to them these words of consolation, I will provide for you. He's reaffirming his commitment to provide for them. I mean, that's what happened at the very beginning when they came down to Egypt. Joseph said, I'm going to provide for you in the midst of this famine. Well, guess what? The famine's long gone. It's been 17 years. He still says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. My commitment was not just to our Father. My commitment is also toward you. My heart was not just with Dad. My heart is with you. Evidently, he's forgiven them, hasn't he? It's shown by his actions. Because he cares for them. Takes care of them. The same way, God continues to provide all that we need for godliness. Romans 8, can't avoid that. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Why are we worried? God has promised to take care of us. Fear not. He will take care of us. It may not look pretty and it may not be easy, but he has promised And many of you have tasted that. You've walked it. You've lived it. You've experienced it. You can tell stories about it to encourage others. And maybe you need to. Jesus does not abandon us when we sin. Again. And again. And again. Following Walter Marshall, I think Kevin DeYoung picks up on this point in his latest book on holiness in that when we sin as a Christian, we do not undo our union with Christ. That is secure. That cannot be broken. 
But while that union with Christ continues, our communion or fellowship with God can be hindered. And so we're, when we are in a state of unrepentance for particular sins, we do not enjoy the fellowship with God that we are intended to enjoy. But the union is still there. It's like when you're not in a good place with your spouse. You're still married, but you're not happy with each other for that day. Most of us have been there. Still married. Still united to Christ, still saved, but not enjoying the fellowship you're intended to enjoy in that relationship at that period of time. And that is when you need to confess your sin and seek after God in light of His promises. So not only does does Joseph say, I will provide for you, but he comforted them. He showed them compassion. He showed them tenderness. He was not scolding them. Those of you who are parents, think of it this way. How is your demeanor different when you catch your kids doing something versus when they come to you and admit they've done something? Isn't it very different? I mean, they know they did wrong. You're not scolding them. You're not chastising and correcting. Oftentimes, you're, you're speaking tenderly in, in, to them and reassuring them of forgiveness. And that's what Joseph does. He's reassuring them. They've come and admitted their failure. He's, he's wrapping himself around them. And that is what Christ does. He does not scold us when we come confessing our sin. I'm reminded of Isaiah 42. Speaking of the Messiah, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring justice. So he's tender, he works tenderly with the bruised reed. He works carefully around the smoldering wick so that they don't go out. He's not there to destroy us, but to bring us back to life and to health as our Savior. Not only that, He comforted them and He spoke kindly to them. It can also be translated, spoke to their heart. He spoke what they needed to hear. We don't know exactly what He said. But it was good stuff. Words of kindness. And so we need to remember that Jesus speaks to us through the Scriptures, reminding us of His promises of grace and restoration, reminding us through the promises of the joy that comes after repentance. He speaks still through the Scriptures to His people who have ears to hear. But not only that, He speaks to us through one another, as we speak to each other the the promises of the Scriptures. Because sometimes you're not even in that state able to open your Bibles and someone needs to come alongside you and remind you of what is testified to there. But you know what has to happen for that to happen? The other person has to know that you're in a bad place. There has to be openness about your sin 
There has to be openness about your pain. You have to let people in. That's what community is supposed to be about. Allowing people not just to see your good side, but your lousy side. We were joking the other night about how I'm prickly and rude, as someone put it. You know? The whole person. Not just the nice guy. Not the, I've got my pastor face on the guy. The whole person. That's all of us. There needs to be, for real community to take place, there needs to be removal of, of the, the masks and the images and, and caring about how people think about us. And the only way you can do that is believing in your justification. That you're forgiven for all that stuff. The only way you can take off the mask is if you really believe you're justified in Christ and not in and of yourself. I need to move on. You get the point, right? So we must open our lives, help others, allow others, not everybody, but somebody, to see our sin, to see our pain, and to speak kindly to us in the gospel. And so the death of Len Bias, back to the beginning, was a tragic event brought about by sin. But God was at work to save many lives. Things that happen to us that we think can destroy us are often used by God to actually save us. Even the sin we commit is used by God to drive us deeper into Christ and into the gospel. To those who are afflicted, he speaks the comfort of his providence. I'm in control. Trust me. To those afflicted by their conscience, he speaks the comfort of the gospel. Don't be afraid. I love you and care for you. We'll need to hear each of those voices, but at different times. But when he speaks, do you listen? Are you willing to listen? Let us repent of our self-pity. Let's pray. Father, so often the problem is not us. Well, it is us. We think it's you, but it's us. (laughs) We get wrapped up in our guilt and our fears and our misery. But we thank you that you do not stay away. Keep drawing near. You keep moving in. You keep speaking the words that we need to hear. And then eventually you give us ears to hear. So Father, as we kind of process this, help us all to see the ways in which we we struggle with believing that Christ's righteousness is enough. I ask that you would continue to drive it deeper into our hearts, that we would be more free from the fear of others and their opinions of us, more free to to love you, more free to be honest with you and one another and to enjoy the fellowship with you and with one another that we were redeemed to enjoy. So do this great work of the gospel in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.